0: Hey there, language lovers, it's Shannon. Excited to have you here for this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. In this episode, Benny and I have a discussion about learning languages with few resources, learning a language for fieldwork, giving up on languages, and learning with a non-native speaker with Nissa, a Fluent in Three Months Challenge participant. As an aside, the audio quality is a little lower than usual due to some recording issues, but this is a very fascinating conversation and it shouldn't impact your enjoyment of the podcast. Some of the things we discuss are understanding the world and oneself better through languages, breaking through the comprehension wall, learning a language with few or no resources, making real progress in a short period of time by focusing on processes, overcoming perfectionism and fear of making mistakes, how to best undertake a 90-day challenge and dream teams, learning with a non-native speaker, the best ways to utilize a language tutor, learning you pick, and giving up on languages. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you left us a review. It lets us know what you like most about the podcast and helps other language learners like yourself find us. You can do so at languagehacking.com review. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com 30. Now, on to our interview with NIssa. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast. My name is Shannon Kennedy, one of your co-hosts. And with me today, I have Benny Lewis.
1: Hey, everybody. How are you doing?
0: And we are chatting with a Fluent in Three Months Challenge participant who has a very interesting background and history, including a master's degree in language. So did you want to take a moment to introduce yourself and kind of let us know how you got into languages? Sure. Um, my name is Nissa. I'm really happy
2: to be here. Um, I, so my background is really, um, in education and anthropology, sort of the anthropology of education. And it's, so my interest in languages has always been that, um, language and culture go together. Like you can't really understand some, a culture without understanding how they use language and how their language functions because language is such a basic, for humans, such a basic part of who we are and how we understand ourselves and how we communicate with each other. And so, my interest in understanding culture and the way that um, people um, teach each other, like how education kind of replicates culture um, necessarily has included languages. And I think, you know, maybe the, the origin of that is um, my um, background, ethnic background is uh, Jewish and you know, the, the Yiddish language is a really interesting, though not completely extant language, um, but it has lots of terms in it that even though my family didn't really, some of them did speak Yiddish completely, but everybody used terms from Yiddish because there weren't any words in English that could express the kinds of things that they wanted. And so I think from a very young age, I was like fascinated by the fact that sometimes you had to use different languages to get across an idea. Um, and so, when I was looking at languages later on, I've always been interested in what kinds of ways. How do we understand the world differently because of the, the language that we're using?
1: And how we understand the world and its importance uh, culturally, and all of that is um, is always like a major factor for a lot of people. And it kind of leads into how broad linguistics can be. But um, I'm curious how your story evolved from that point. To the language acquisition side of things, because it's one thing being interested in how language influences uh, human society, and it's another to uh, take a personal journey to learn uh, an entire language yourself.
2: True, good point. Um, so, I um, I studied uh, French in high school, and like lots of people who studied French in high school, didn't really learn French or couldn't really speak it, even though you know I got lots of A's in the classes. And I kept being told that I was a good French student. Certainly couldn't really believe that because I couldn't do much with the language. Um, And so when I went to college, I actually studied Russian instead because I felt like um, my French learning was sort of a failure since I couldn't really speak it. But I did um, end up going to France um, when I was in college, not to study, just was passing through. Um, when I studied abroad in Scotland, actually. And I asked somebody, I had to find the train station to catch my train. And I asked somebody where the train station was. And I just couldn't believe that my like baby French actually resulted in somebody um, understanding what I was saying and replying to me and me understanding basically um, their response. It just it was the first time that I realized that language actually is about communication. Um, not just like filling in the textbook and doing the exercises. And that, I think, was really um, powerful enough that I decided that I was going to actually learn French in a real way, not just to get an A on the exam, but to be able to communicate with it. So um, I ended up living in France, and as well as uh, French-speaking West Africa as well, and also working, landing a job at the United Nations as a bilingual secretary. With my, what I did learn with French, so I had some, you know, a number of years where I got to actually learn French for use, um, and I was young enough at that point, my early twenties, that um, it, it I think while I wasn't learning it as a, you know, as a maternal language anyway, I was young enough that it really became sort of part of my personality or part of my identity it was as a French speaker as well. And at that point in my life as you a know, completely fluent French speaker. So I think, you know, as I went on and ended up um, going to graduate school, and as I mentioned, this anthropology of education field, um, language became an important, I realized how, from that experience, I realized how important it was if you were going to say that you were looking at a culture to understand the language, because I found that you know, speaking French, tapped into a sort of different part of myself, a different understanding of the world, different ways of expressing things, different idioms, different sort of thought process even. And so I wanted to make sure that I was honoring or that I kept that. And so that got me more interested in learning other languages or the importance of learning language if you are learning culture as well, and actually learning it, not just saying it's
0: uh, I have a similar background to you where I studied musicology. So I studied both the way that languages functioned in music. So quite similar. Um, so I did a lot of fieldwork and research while I was studying for my degree. And I found that being able to speak the languages that I was researching helped me a lot. And I, my school, thankfully, offered a program where I was able to study some of the languages. But with you, you've studied languages in a variety of contexts. And I'd love to know a little bit about what those were and how they worked for you and how you've kind of settled on what you're doing now.
2: Let's see. So I think part of it outside of like studying and you know, professional stuff, um, I've had some other you know, motivations for learning languages. The other languages that I've been learning, I you know, I feel like my level in, in both are are not great. Um Bangla and Arabic were not at all um kind of professionally motivated. So with Bangla I Bengali I live in a very um Bengali Bangla Bangladeshi part of New York, um Jackson Heights, if anyone knows that part of New York City. It's a very multicultural area, Queens, um the borough of Queens is, you know, the most diverse county in the world. Um, but the little section of it that I live in, um, is sort of Bangladeshi and dominated. And, um, I picked up a number of Bangladeshi friends. And so I kept, I was hearing the language a lot and it's because it's, uh, not a language that's, you know, it's, it's not related to English. Um. At all, or romance languages, it wasn't a language where you could pick up a bit. Like from speaking French, you know, when I hear Spanish on the street, I can, you know, basically know what topic people are on. Or if somebody speaks to me in Spanish, I can sort of answer. I know that I'm butchering the language terribly, but I think you know, knowing French and a bit of Italian, I can kind of get enough Spanish out to make myself understood. But a language like English, oh, that's not at all possible. And when you hear it, you're not hearing. Um, anything that you can comprehend unless there's an English word sort of thrown in as, you know, legacy of colonialism. So I would be out with friends and I just felt like this wall of um, incomprehensible sound. And I really don't like that feeling. Like I, I want to be able to have like something that I understand. And, um, I, but I also really liked the sound of Bagla. Um, it's just something very beautiful about the language. It's got a, a lot of alliteration and just this there's a lot of sounds. There's 42 letters on the alphabet. And so there are a lot of sounds um, but they they go well together. <laughs> They're very sort of melodic. So those are my motivations there. And um I found well I found it very challenging as a language to learn and I, I wasn't doing well my Bamba study before I found the fact the challenge at all um found a teacher, you know, somebody in person, but I didn't know about sites like italki. So I just, yeah, my resources were limited. I actually found out about the challenge and fluent in three months because I kept going to the Strand bookstore, which is an enormous used bookstore in Manhattan, in the hopes of finding one book on the Bengali language, but it, they never had any, even though they had other very obscure languages, their language section. And... The book version of Fluent in Three Months was in that same section. And so I looked at it and sort of thumbed through it a little bit, but didn't buy it because really I was there just to buy Bengali book if there were any, which there weren't. Um, and then, but decided on my next visit that I would buy it because I was intrigued by the concept of, you know, just the confidence that you could learn to become, um, you know, to use a language effectively in such a short time. But when I went back, it was gone. So then I found your online presence. But it was kind of um, reading just that title made me realize, like, I think I'm going about learning my on the wrong way. It's very, very slow ways. I needed to immerse myself more and push myself more, too.
1: Yeah, it's very very interesting, the story that you've had, and especially the inspiration with uh, everybody in your community. And I know that even though I I believe uh, it's maybe... Like the eighth most spoken language in the world, or something like that. It's like in the I think it's sixth. Sixth, yes. Oh, wow. So it's like it's such a hugely spoken language, and yet the resources uh, to be able to learn it are, like you said, Strand. I know that book st- bookstore. It's uh, one of the um, uh, best resources if you happen to be in New York to find language learning material. And yet you didn't find anything for uh, for the language that you wanted to learn. So what? changed with the challenge and like how did your learning evolve and what would you recommend for other people who also happen to be learning a language that it's not necessarily that there's a lack of speakers it's just a lack of materials how do you work through that issue
2: well i think the basic issue that i was having wasn't completely a lack of resources because there are a few textbooks and like i said i had found an in-person teacher even if um it wasn't you know the most effective approach for me, um, but I think um, the fact that you know people were always are always surprised to hear that I was learning Bangla and especially Bangla speaking people, because as they kept saying, our language is really difficult. Why are you doing this? Um, so finding a community of people for whom language learning was like a normal thing rather than this oddity was really helpful. Just to like say, okay, you know, I'm not the only person who. Wants to be doing something like this, and to also find this group of people who, for whom, and I think premise of your book, Benny, that it is possible to learn a language, you know, in a reasonable amount of time. You know, maybe not as far as you want to get in just three months, but you know, you it's not like a lifetime commitment. You can make real progress um, in a short time and and use the language that you're interested in. So just having that mindset really changed things. as it is overwhelming when you start a language, especially a language that isn't like a language that, you know, you know, and and people have a the sense that language learning is hard. That's just the way we, especially in this country, in the U.S., we think of language learning as such a difficult thing. Um, so to, to just change that mindset was really, really important. So I found myself slipping into it as I wasn't making much progress um, with the language. Um, but to get down to, to resources more, I think for for languages that aren't, yeah, that are actually very widely spoken, but aren't widely, widely taught. Oh, that was, sorry, I'm jumping around a bit. That's the other thing that I really appreciated about the community was that it's a community of language learners, not a community necessarily of language speakers. Of course, there is both, but the idea that you would focus on the process of learning was also really helpful. And I think... So those three kinds of shifts from realizing it's possible to having um, other people around who are doing the same thing. and Also, um, to think of yourself as a learner, those are really important things. Um, In terms of resources, I think um, that there was a lot of um, support within the community to know how to use the resources or to help you effectively use the resources that you have even if those resources were limited. So, you know, like when I was working on learning Bangla before the challenge and I had a teacher that wasn't, where I wasn't making the progress I wanted to, you know, I just kind of kept going with it because I felt very limited. Whereas within the challenge, suddenly people are saying, no, 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 try out as many, you'll find somebody that you like if you keep trying and trying new teachers and new tutors and new language exchange partners. So that forcing yourself to, you know, work with different people until you found somebody who works with works well with you was really helpful. And I did um, within the first like six weeks, found somebody for whom language learning has become a, you know, learning Bangla with him has become a real joy. Um, and I look forward, you know, to every lesson I have with him. So. Which was not, which was kind of the opposite of how it had been going. Um, So that was one thing. Um, And then the the emphasis on knowing, you know, constantly reflecting on what's working for you makes every resource that you can get your hands on um, more effective. When you don't have, you can't say, oh, you know, with a language like Bond, it's not like you have a lot of resources to choose from. So you're not choosing um, kind of resource that that works for you, you're taking the resource that you have and making it work for you. Um, and so I felt like people were very supportive about that. And I was able to use the resources I did have more effectively, which were textbooks and tutors.
0: I know that one of the resources that you also used were was the community that you have in your area. And so I was wondering what some of the best impromptu conversations you might have had in Bangla were when you were using it out and about.
2: Hmm. So I'm one of those people who's actually quite shy about using language. Um, so, so it took a long time to get up the courage um, to use Bangla at all. And, um, so the conversations that I have had have been with, um, like just people in shops. Um, one thing that makes, um, makes it a little easier to start talking to people in shops is that, you know, you can use the Bengali Reading, um, and once you do that, then you're kind of on the right track to um, get started with the conversation. Blah blah, blah. Um, but all of them, <laughs> this same in that the person I'm speaking to just looks so shocked that they. Most of the conversation is, you know, why are you? How is it that you're speaking this language? Um, which at least gets them over and gets us through the fact that. My on is far, far, far from perfect. In their shock, they're much more forgiving,
1: and it's a great feeling when they show that appreciation because there's certain certainly a level of shock, but it's also you kind of see a, a light in their eye that um, you know someone truly actually cares about their culture, So it uh, it's got this um, two-edged side to it, you know, and it all comes down to perspective, and it can uh, some people would feel demotivated sometimes by that shock and, and think, you know, maybe they don't think I'm good enough to speak this language, but ultimately there's a huge sense of, uh, encouragement there. And, uh, it's, um, I, I do, I hope you've gotten, uh, extra energy out of those kinds of interactions. Oh,
2: absolutely. And in fact, um, are very proud of their language, um, because, you know, it's so- Part of their fight for independence was to preserve their language and not be subsumed by Urdu from the Pakistanis. Um, what was West Pakistan? Um, and that was so. Language was at the root of their um, struggle for a national identity. So, um, when you speak, if you speak Bangla um, or have an interest in Bangla, it's also having an interest in, in somebody's, you know, sort of very basic identity. In this particular case. So,
0: Since you brought up that you are really shy and that initiating conversations can be difficult, what would you recommend to other learners who might also be shy? And what would you recommend for them to overcome that shyness? What what works for you?
2: I think what's worked for me is realizing um, that you don't have to speak the language perfectly, that you just have to speak it. Um, You just have to try. Um, I think part of it has been um, been going to the French language parties that, that you guys offer and realizing that, you know, people make, myself included, make lots of mistakes, but, you know, it, it's fine. We're all speaking French, um, which I'm not sure why I didn't have that realization earlier. Um, but I think it's, it's really helpful to realize that you're speaking a language as a second language. And everyone knows that. They're not going to expect you to speak it like as if it were your first language. And that almost, I think part of the problem is, with, you know, for us in America is that we don't have as much, a lot of Americans don't have the experience of speaking a second language. Um, but that's not true for just about everyone else around the globe, especially non-English native speakers, you know, um, so such a huge percentage of them have the experience of speaking English as a second language because it's, you know, lingua franca for so many things. So remembering that, that, you know, whereas I didn't grow up with the experience of speaking a second language, the people I'm speaking to did. And so they're, they're much more, you know, just naturally in attuned to you know, the issues that, that that brings. I guess that's what I would, I would say. and. You know, that um, the appreciation that Benny mentioned is also another thing. You can't get that appreciation if you're too shy to speak the to speak the language. And like I said, with some languages, it's really a matter of national pride or personal pride in the language. So, um, so you get extra. It's even easier to be appreciated. So that can also be a motivation.
1: Yeah, and as well as um, just seeing everybody else in the community and them lifting you up. And I think, uh, I think you attended one of our, um, FI3M office hours for a little bit of a motivational pick, uh, pick me up. And have you found these, uh, learning sessions with the group, um, to be uh, a big difference uh, compared to how you would have learned before?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I do try to attend a lot of or as many of the office hours as I can, because it's really good reminder that it's a community of learners. Um, and learning is a very active, you know, an active thing. You can't have to be engaged in it. And so I feel like seeing other people, hearing their questions um, is really helpful. It, yeah, it helps me develop my learner identity, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The, the office sessions are all about learning. And so you come into it as a learner. And that's what's been the most helpful that's also true of the comments that people put on Slack. I think it's going differences that in the past, I felt like I, as an individual, have been trying to learn a language. And even though I'm learning a language that's different, that in the two challenges that I've done, or I'm doing involved in my second one now, um, nobody has also been learning manga. But I have felt much more much less alone than I have in previous times, even when I was in a whole classroom full of French learners or Arabic learners, because it's not about just my learning. It's about the fact that people are learning together and helping each other to learn more effectively. um, So that learner identity is there, not just the specific language learner.
0: The dream teams are really important to the success of participants in the Fluent in Three Months Challenge. And so, from your experience, having been in such an exceptionally supportive group, what would you recommend to other participants, um, things that they can do perhaps to really get their dream team up and going and for it to be as beneficial of a resource to them as it was for you and your experience in the challenge?
2: Well, the biggest thing is to actually meet in person. It's so much easier to respond um empathetically and effectively when you have a face to put with the name um of the person in a you know in a chat room in a slack channel. So that that's one thing is like really getting to know people um in person. Well, you know these days in person, which means Zoom. But so that's a big one. Um definitely in um you know I think the two dream teams I've been on are ones that have um, a variety of languages. so nobody is um, able to understand each other's language well. Um, but I think it's still really important to speak the language that you're learning around other people so that they everyone sort of connects you with your language as well as gets to hear you um, making attempts and not always you know speaking as uh, fluently and fluently as you want but um, but sharing that experience of, of grappling with your language and and working with it um, and letting people know where you're at with it, where your struggles are. So that's been an important thing. And we've tried to make the language speaking time kind of formalized so that people feel like, you know, that they can prepare, that they can have notes or vocabulary in front of them to make it as comfortable as possible. Um, So we've put a particular topic out or we've done um, something... Named Around Robin, where you ask a question in your language, as somebody else, they answer in their target language, and then they turn around and ask someone in their target language. The next person um, responds in their own language. So you're hearing a lot of different languages, but you are sort of asking and answering the same questions. Um, We also um, taught each other a little bit of each other's language so that you could say hello and goodbye and how are you (laughs) in each other's language to kind of acknowledge um, other people's. languages, which, you yeah, um, know, it's
1: been helpful. I think all of that is great. It, re- it really emphasizes the uh, fact that uh, a lot of people might think they would need uh, a native speaker to be guiding them very intimately in every aspect of the process. And you've been learning with other learners who don't ha- don't have any on um, knowledge of the language that you're learning, and it's made a huge difference. And I believe you even took this an extra step that uh, really emphasizes that you can do quite a lot without a native speaker. That you actually have a, a native English speaker who's teaching you Bangla, is that right?
2: That is true. Yeah. But he has been in um, Bengali speaking uh, India for twenty years. But that has been helpful because he understands what makes Bangla hard for English speakers and where the where the similarities are and can point both of those out. So that has been really helpful. I think also. Not just him, but actually all of the tutors that I've got have a real love for this language. Um, And so, you know, but especially hearing it from a native English speaker to know that even as a second language, he, you know, appreciates the language, beauty and complexity, and the kinds of things you can express in that language um, in Bamba versus other languages as well.
0: I'd love to know more about um, your. Experience studying with a non native speaker because I think for a lot of learners, it's something that they're a little bit skeptical about. They feel like they need to learn with a native speaker. And as you said, someone who's already learned the language has the ability to, I guess, be a little bit more compassionate with you because they understand where you're coming from because they've gone through the process of learning the language. So, what are some of the things that you and your tutor do together when you work on the language?
2: Um, So, he likes to role play, um, which I think is really helpful. Um, so for my, um, 90 day conversation, I posted a role play that we did of, um, arranging a, a trip, um, to Darjeeling, you know, a big tourist destination in, in, um, India. And so he role played being, you know, the train ticket salesman and the hotel reservation person and the car service, Um, so he made it very um, practical um, because these are kinds of practical conversations you might have if you're actually, you know, traveling around that area. And he's also, you know, I don't know how uh, this differs maybe from a native speaker, but he kind of anticipated the problems I would have in responding, um, the kinds of mistakes I would make and and reacted accordingly, um, which might have come... And then sometimes he's mentioned like um, there are two ways of saying to get dropped off. One is in Bangla and one is like if you're getting dropped off on the way somewhere, whereas another is is you are getting dropped off at your destination. So that was something he like messed up and got, you know, let off at the wrong place on a bus from. So he kind of had that sort of, you know, very basic experience with the language and mistakes he'd made or confusions that he'd had and bring those, let me know, you know, how to avoid those kinds of problems. I guess that would, you know, something from learning the language that he was aware of, whereas I'm sure a native speaker would just, you know, it's just, it doesn't occur to, might not occur to someone that those two things would be confusing, two different ways of saying drop off.
1: And as well as Bangla, you actually have experience in other languages that are not as commonly learned. And I believe you got your master's degree in one of the Eskimo languages. So what drew you to that language and how does learning it in a university context differ for this much less commonly learned language uh, compared to how you've learned it with the challenge?
2: Yeah, so um, I learned Yupik Eskimo as part of my um, work on my dissertation, um, which I did in Alaska. So kind of like Shannon does ethnomusicology, I did ethnomathematics, learning of how math functions in different cultures and how we teach it. Um, so the project I did my dissertation on was using um, yupik Eskimo people's understanding and use of mathematics and um, how that could be used in um, elementary and middle school classroom. So it made a lot of sense. We were working with yupik elders um, and educators and the elders in general didn't speak any English, and so it, you know, it was kind of necessary to learn at least some Yupik to be able to understand what they were saying. We had translators, of course, for the for the um, for really communicating. But translators, you know, it's very hard simultaneous translation, and we were missing a lot. I was also going into um, a lot of villages where at least the older people only spoke uh, Yupik or, or very limited English, and I wanted to be able to be respectful and speak, you know, be able to answer their questions. Um, but I did mostly learn Yupik by taking university classes. in it. And as I found with French, um, you know, I learned how to answer the questions in the book and not really learn how to speak. Um, what it took to speak was having, um, you know, friends who were willing to, you know, kind of listen to me, correct me, speak very, very slowly and simply. Um, Uyghur is a language, like a lot of indigenous languages, that has many levels of language. You kind of, you know, if you're talking about more complex ideas, you would use a much higher language level um, than if you're just talking casually. So I got, you know, people who were willing to speak in that very the simplest form of Uyghur Eskimo with me and then kind of help me to, begin to understand a little bit of the higher, the more complex form of it, um, which of course was how the elders were speaking about these um, cons- mathematical concepts that we were talking to them about. Um, so it, it wasn't, and what I found is that while you know during my field work, I was able to speak some and you know have basic conversations. Um, I lost it all. I mean I, you know I never use it um, since graduating from my. Um, doctoral program. Um, And I think it didn't really um, become part of me the way that I'm hoping Bamba will or French did. Um, When when language is so academic, when you're learning it in a classroom, you're taking, you know, your focus is on taking tests or passing some sort of exam. um, I think it, it doesn't, don't internalize it in the same way. You don't get the same intimacy with the language, which is that I think is actually necessary to be a real speaker of it. Um, you know, not necessarily a fluent speaker, but somebody who can communicate in their language. You have to like take it in and make it a part of you. Make give it space in your brain and um, even kind of your soul to 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 really uh, be able to communicate. So yeah, I'm afraid that you pick kind of went the way of my <laughs> my high school French learning and my college Russian learning, which is that I don't retain a lot of it.
0: That's yes, because I know for a lot of language learners, a really big fear Is losing a language. And this is a really big concern people have. And I think they kind of fall into the trap of the sunk cost fallacy, where you've already invested so much time into studying this language. So rather than give it up, because you feel like you will have wasted that time, you keep investing more time into the language. And since you've mentioned, you know, that you have opted not to continue on with like French Eskimo or Russian, what What goes into that decision making making process for you, given that you have spent time and then since you studied at university, even money into these languages, that it's like you feel okay to let them go? Well, I haven't let go of French. Um, I let go of my high school French. So I'll I'll clarify that. Um,
2: I still speak French um, because I, well, I was not a successful language learner in high school, Um, living in France and French speaking West Africa really changed, um, you know, how I felt and learned the language. Um, So even when I don't speak French for a while, I can get it, it comes back. Um, With um, Russian and and Yupik on the other hand, um, I think part of it is that you have to find, in order to maintain a language, you have to find ways to speak it. And I didn't, you know, for Russian, I didn't make that effort um, because I I didn't ever get to, I, I didn't get to a level of fluency where I was able to speak much um, and my, you know, I went off after college. and. In terms of language, much more into French since I was living in perhaps in West Africa, um, so it just didn't—you know—it would have taken a lot. There wasn't that much sunk cost, I guess, <laughs> is a way to say it. For a language like Yupik Eskimo, you know, it's—it's it's a language that is really, really intertwined with its place. Like, um, you know, we talk linguists talk about high context and low context languages, and English is a very low con- is the most low context language because it's spoken in so many places that it can't really be tailored to the place that you're speaking it. And Yupik is exactly the opposite. You know, words have meanings that are tied to um, a particular mountain. You know, the way you describe something is based on the way a particular bend and a particular river goes. Um, and so, it's. With a high context language like that, it doesn't, it feels like um, something that you have to somehow have a connection to the place to continue working on. And because I, um, after graduating, I got a job as a professor, you know, in a completely different part of the country, um, it was too hard to keep that connection to place. So I think. You know, I think you have to think that I think about like languages are living things, and so they have they play different roles in people's lives. And and so for you know, Yupik Eskimo is a is a language that is really really uh, anchored in that Western Alaska region. Um, And being out of it sort of made it less applicable. You can't find you know books or so on that are in Yupik. So, but I don't in any way regret having spent a lot of time learning Yipik Esma because it made my experience while I was doing that project on my ethno mathematics project so much richer, you know, to understand um, how a little bit more, to get a little window into the way that Yipik um, see the world was so valuable. And even if it's, you know, close to me now it's close not just because i you know haven't retained a lot of the language some you know not a lot um but also close to me because i'm not in that world right now i'm not living there anymore i'm not working on those kinds of issues professionally anymore either
1: and um since you've made this um this major transition from the academic side of uh of languages how they apply culturally and Course, a fascinating uh, topic to see how the uh, mathematics can change thanks to the language. Um, And then you found through the chance encounter, you found my book and the site. So, one thing that kind of uh, leads to that, I'm very curious to hear what your definition of language hacking would be, given this evolution that you've had in recent years uh, with languages.
2: Yeah. So, you know, if I had known. Um, had a better understanding of language hacking, I would have approached learning UPIC and, and Russian completely differently. I think language hacking is becoming an active participant in your language learning, and the way that languages are taught are, is so passive. You know, it's, it's learn this verb, okay, now memorize this. Um, we're gonna, you know, give you all the questions, you just give a response we're going to pick out what you read and you know see if you can understand it and language hacking is kind of the opposite as far as i understand it you decide what it is that you want to do with your language and then what is going to help you to get there and you know everyone's goals are different the reasons for learning language are different and so the way to get there is also necessarily going to look different and what you're trying to do is match things that you do with the language with the goal that you have and i think A lot of it is like trying to enact that goal, like, you know, having the 15 minute conversation is sort of saying, "Okay, what I want to be able to do is speak, you know, fluidly and fluently about sort of general topics that come up in this conversation. And you might not do it right away, but you've had your like brain has been confronted with the challenge. It sort of knows what you're aiming for, whereas when you're learning a language academically, you don't. You know, you just have to follow along with whatever the authors of your book have decided is the right path for, for learning your language. But their goal might be that you could perfectly conjugate, you know, seven different um, verb forms. Whereas, you know, in spoken conversation, people actually don't really care if you misconjugate a verb here and there. It won't make what you're talking about incomprehensible. The human brain just sort of fills that in. If you're talking about the present, you accidentally put in a past participle. I don't even think we even notice. We just like correct it in our in our heads. So while that might be that seemed to be the goal of a lot of my French grammar books was to make sure that each conjugation was perfect, that's not actually what's required in, in speaking the language um casually with somebody. So I think that's that's the biggest thing that you that you f- you figure out what your goals are and what will help you get there. And a lot of the what will help you get there is listening to other people and what's helped them get there and how to um, make that work for you or or not. You know, listen to somebody else. So that's where the community comes in because you can't. I, I think it's a mistake as a somebody who's learning a language for the purpose of communication for the purpose of making connections with other people who aren't. Um, who don't speak your first language as their first language. Um, you know, that goal is, is very different um, from what an academic study of the language is about.
0: And if someone were considering taking the Fluent 3 Months Challenge, what would your advice be to them to get the most out of their experience in the challenge?
2: Well, one, force your dream team to meet. Just... Like, <laughs> make sure that um, that people aren't um, bowing out without a fight. Um, you know, keep putting messages in the channel. Keep, um, you know, keep offering times. I ended up, you know, sort of being the main organizer of my second dream team just because I didn't want it to fade away. So that, you know, making sure and and maybe outside your dream team, find people who are posting things that are kind of like, familiar or similar to what you you're wanting and so that would be one thing just you know use the community that's there as much as possible because that's really i mean a lot of the the challenge is on you and you're doing it by yourself at home so you know why are you even involved in this why did you pay money to do it it's because you get this community and and you need to make use of it otherwise you know as shannon mentioned it's a sunk cost and wouldn't want that. You want to actually leverage that um, that resource as much as you possibly can. Um, and then the other thing I think is remembering that for this challenge, you're a language learner, and so your focus has to be on your learning plan, what you know, what resources you have, and how you're going to use them. Um, how to make choices about what's working and what isn't, so that um, you get into a rhythm and a routine that you like. Um, and the office hours are really helpful for that, um, because the people running the office, hour, office hours have had, you know, much more experience than most of the rest of us could claim in terms of language learning. So they've figured out, you know, some good tricks and some good approaches and you can ask them directly. Um, and I've always gotten very specific, good feedback, I've um, gone to the office hours, um, I would probably get started a little bit before the challenge begins if you can so that you feel like when you get there you're not completely at a loss. Um, I think that's helpful to come in feeling like, okay, I have some things I'm going to you know, start from the get-go.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, and I would uh, wrap this up just by um, being curious to hear what your, your plans are and how your language learning uh, story is going to continue here on forward
2: well um i sort of feel like if i can get to a point with bangla that i feel like i can use more resources because i you know my fluency is better and my level is higher so there's just more there um that at that point it will be time to pick up my arabic again which also suffered from uh having learned it in a very academic setting um so i'm really excited um start learning that in the more language hacking approach, um, to know what my goals are with, you know, to understand my goals for learning the language, um, and focus, you know, make my focus that not, um, a complete academic study of Arabic, which is overwhelming because it's also a quite complex language. So I think my, my next challenge (laughs) will be in Arabic. So that's exciting to me as well. Um, and I've also, um, you know, realized that I can be more of a support to other people than I had have been in the past. Um, I feel like I've learned some things or I've learned what motivates me and I can pass that on. So I think I will try in the future, either in a future challenge or in the alumni community to be more um, vocal about uh, and helpful as I can be to others. Supporting their journey, um, I think that what I've, you know, what I've really learned is that it is really possible to learn another language um, in a way that that makes it that opens up the world for you in a, in a reasonable amount of time, um, and that that experience is exhilarating and um, and deeply personal, but um, but can be shared. Maybe so, I would want, hopefully to. Um, share that with others and, and be a support for others who are maybe in the place I was when I started my first challenge, which was feeling frustrated and unsure of myself.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us and your history with languages and learning some of the lesser learned languages. And um, for those of you listening, if you've enjoyed this podcast, we appreciate your reviews. And of course, as always, you can find all of the resources mentioned in the show notes for this episode. So in the meantime, happy language learning.
1: Happy language learning. Thank you very much.
0: In each episode, Benny and I like to share a key takeaway you can take action on, something you can put into play in your language learning right away. And in this episode, Nissa shares something that she's doing a little different than you might expect. She's practicing the language she's learning not with a native speaker, but with a fellow learner. Why? Because someone who's a learner of the language is going to have insights into where you're at that a native speaker might not. Having been through the process themselves, they know where you're likely to have hang-ups, stumbling blocks, and miscommunications. And they're better equipped to help you navigate through them because they've already overcome those obstacles. So what about you? Are you learning with a native speaker or a fellow learner? Let us know in the comments for this episode. We hope you enjoyed this interview and we certainly enjoyed chatting with Nissa. Thanks for listening. And if you found this interview helpful, don't forget to leave us a review at languagehacking.com review. Until next time and happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts,
2: Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel. With special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.